the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the Maple Leaf Hot Stove Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. Anthony, how you doing, man? Well, I thought we weren't going to have much to talk about, and you got to give the Leafs credit. They keep life interesting. <laughs> I mean, if it's not a replacement goalie coming in to a Zamboni driver to save the day, if it's not a Game 7 playoff loss to Boston, it's always something with the Toronto Maple Leafs to make life interesting. This time, it was a 5-1 lead against the Ottawa Senators. They weren't able to hold it. I don't want to freak out too much about any one loss because we know that larger samples are what matter. It's not worth microanalyzing just one game at a time here. But when it's a loss that bad and it's this repeated pattern of not just the fact that they lost a third period lead, because I don't think that's the greater issue. If you compare Toronto's third period lead uh, win percentage versus other teams, they're about middle of the pack in the Austin Matthews era. If you look at a winning percentage after a second period lead, they're 16th over the last four years. So that's not the problem to me so much as it is maybe a qualitative problem of when you see the Leafs start to crumble in a high-pressure situation, how confident are you that they're going to come out of it in a, in a positive way? I think Sheldon Keefe indicated in the press conference the other night that he wasn't confident at all. At 5-2, he, he thought that they were not going to hold on to that lead. How are you feeling when you watch games like that? You know, I, I know we, we talked about it uh, briefly before we started recording the show, so I'm trying to capture all of that and then expand on it a little bit more. But, you know, really the bottom line is these guys just, they do not deserve the benefit of the doubt in any in any circumstances whatsoever at this point. Like, And I don't mean that like in a bad way, and I don't mean that like I think that they're bad or anything. Like, they're a good team. Uh, no one's going to question that. They're going to make the playoffs this year more than I would probably bet at this point still that they're going to win the division. But like when it comes to like big games and big moments, like they really haven't done anything as, as a core that really gives us any sort of like comfort or any sort of like, yeah, I know that they're going to like pull through. Um, You know, you think of like old, like if you look back at, you know, even just like the Matt Sundin Leafs of their prime with like Pat Quinn and whatnot, like if that team had a game like this, like you'd kind of shrug and be like, well, like I know, you know, um, they'll pick it up and they'll pick and choose their spots and whatever else is the case. And at that team never even went to a cup final, but they did play other than the Red Wings for like a five year span. They played more playoff games than any other franchise in the league. Uh, like they they earned a little bit of benefit of the doubt, but this team, they haven't like there's nothing that we could point to that makes us think like, yeah, we feel good about them. I know if you're watching a team like the L.A. Lakers right now in basketball and they have a bit of an off night, you're thinking, well, they're going to bring it when it matters in the playoffs because LeBron James, we have a large body of evidence that shows when it matters in the playoffs, he elevates his play. With the Leafs, we haven't seen that yet, and that's a nice way of putting it. But to me, the more interesting way of breaking this down isn't just looking at the Ottawa Senators' 5-1 loss because... It's one isolated incident, but again, you compare it to the David Ayer situation. You compare it to Game 7 collapses where similar players are on these teams. Different coaching staffs, similar players, you know, Austin Matthews, Morgan Riley, players who historically have given up a lot defensively. Could that be a part of the problem? Because Austin Matthews, we'll get to this, he's been unbelievable this season. You don't want to put too much of the blame on him, but how do you evaluate a team like this because it just seems like the inconsistency from game to game I know if you look at expected goals over the last two seasons no one's been more inconsistent 
when it comes to having a dominant game or having a terrible game, uh, whether you're destroying the opposition or getting completely blown out, the Leafs have the biggest differential in the in the league when it comes to those types of games. So when we're evaluating this team, how do we do it? Because I don't want to freak out about one loss to Ottawa. I don't want to freak out about a three-game series with the Vancouver Canucks. But at the same time, I want to take something out of these games because other teams around the league, they have to face poor competition, and they still have to beat them. The Leafs have a strong record right now, but as we'll bring up, there are some indicators that suggest that that might not last. So how do you go about evaluating this Leafs team? Because I've been having a lot of trouble this year. Well, I think the first part is kind of like the bar that we're holding them to, right? Like we all pretty much assume that they're going to make the playoffs and barring some sort of catastrophe, like that's going to happen. I don't think anyone's going to fight you on that. I don't think anyone would argue with that going into the season, right? There was a bunch of teams. Everyone's like, I don't know how the Canadian division is going to shake out, but the Leafs were going to make it. And they were the betting favorite as well to win the division. So really, like when we look at this point, like they're judged, they're going to be judged by their playoff success. Like if they, I feel fairly confident suggesting if they lose in the first round again, like somebody's getting fired. Like some, some shoe is going to drop whether that's a significant player or somebody, and I'm I'm not saying it'll be the GM, I'm not saying it'll be the head coach, but like there will be significant changes if they lose in the first round this year. Do we agree there? Well, yeah, especially if it's to a team like Winnipeg or Calgary or Edmonton. I mean, if it's Montreal, I don't know if it's a close back and forth series and you lose, you know, in the It'll final five game, years in a row. Well. Yeah, and, you know, we've been saying this for how many years now, that, hey, don't just worry about the result, worry about the process, but when you don't get results in the playoffs, it becomes harder and harder to, to lean on that good process. But when we're talking about good process, you need to be dominating play at even strength. The Leafs haven't been doing that this year. You look at the metrics, they've been above average, but it hasn't been to the degree that you would expect, given the talent on the roster. Yeah, and to me, that's kind of how I've been evaluating them, like, how is the process of what they're doing going to translate to, you know, when games tighten up down the stretch and a potential playoff run? Like, are And frankly, that's across the Canadian division, that's hard to evaluate. Yeah, and it, it's tough in a division that's just like bleeding offense, probably because all the teams are really not that good, save for the Leafs, potentially the Habs, potentially Winnipeg. But, uh, you know, you're high on Winnipeg. You're much higher on Winnipeg than Calgary and Edmonton. I find that interesting. I think Dubois is really good. I th I think he like he makes a notable difference. I don't know we haven't seen him really like like he's he's out again, right? Like and he played like one game and he played 12 minutes. It's tough to say. Like, but if he rounds into form, like like we saw him last year in the playoffs, like that guy's a problem. And they're using Shifley in the line a spot on the power play, and he can uncork a one timer. Not as good as Lane, obviously, but if they're able to get that power play going without Lane, and then they have those centers that they can run at even strength, I can see where you're coming from, Winnipeg. I just find it interesting because I don't think any, I don't think other hockey uh, sources out there are as high on the team as you are right now. Yeah, and then when we turn back to the Leafs, I just kind of sit there, and it's really to to what you pointed to. And I know people think we're like we're nitpicking this team or we're just being like overly negative or whatever, but like like I'm not evaluating like whether like what they're doing is gonna win their next game against Ottawa. Like I could care like I expect that they'll win that game, especially given what happened, but like honestly, whether they do or not, like it's really not gonna tell me much. They're gonna make the playoffs either way, but but if like they're riding a hot power play and they're crap at five on five or like mediocre or like average like, that's not good enough. Like, we've seen what happens in the playoffs every year. 
The refs swallow their whistles. You basically get no power plays. And that Hab series that just happened, that mini series, the Leafs had three power plays over two games. Like, that's what I expect in the playoffs. So if you're just going to get, if you're going to be like average to mediocre at five on five and hope for a hot power play, like you're not going anywhere. So one thing we do know is that star players drive results in hockey, not to the degree that they do in other sports, like say a quarterback in football or a primary ball handler in basketball, but stars are what drive results at the team level for your team. And Toronto star player Austin Matthews is having a career best season. He's t- he's basically picking off where he left off last season from a defensive standpoint and improved even more. We can see it in his hit totals that he's using his physicality a bit more. And frankly, I don't care too much about hitting a guy who doesn't have the puck. But when it comes to uh, puck retrievals in his own end, he's going in and he's finishing his check on the uh, upcoming forward, st- uh, stripping them of the puck, moving it up the ice uh, with efficiency. I love Matthew's 200-foot play. I love his impact in the defensive zone, in the neutral zone. And then offensively, I don't know how many goals he's on pace for right now. 50 in 56 games? 49. 49. It it depends on the game. Myrtle (laughs) always throws out the tweet. That's how I keep up with it. But he's having a legitimate heart season. I'm not sure if he's going to win it, but I'd be surprised if he wasn't a top three finalist by the end of the year. We're talking about negativity and, you know, lofty expectations for this team. But I think it's because they have a player of this caliber. And much like Edmonton fans are probably complaining when the team doesn't meet the standards of their best player. With Austin Matthews, you have one heck of a player here. And you're hoping that you can surround it with some complimentary talent. But if we're strictly talking about Matthews' performance this year, what's impressed you the most with his play? I think just his overall engagement, right? Like, um, like we've always known that he was a good scorer and he's always had the potential to be strong defensively, basically in any facet of the game that he wants to, like he's a good skater. He's a strong guy. He reads the play. Well, you know, he understands how to win battles in tight spots. Uh, you know, people, you know, he has good stick work, whether that's with the puck or to retrieve it, like all that stuff. But it's always just been his engagement level. And, you know, like pretty much every young player ever, there were games where he'd kind of like float in and out of it or whatever, you know, he wouldn't be there or it might take like somebody hitting him or like whatever to get him going. But now like a random Tuesday night against the Detroit Red Wings. Yeah. Right. Like I always say like a random Thursday against Minnesota, just like the most random of random. And like, you know, he'd go out there for a float or whatever the case is. But like now he's, he looks to initiate, like he, he looks to be the danger in and of himself. Like he's not waiting for anything. And I've said this a few times. And like, I will say this throughout the entire season through the playoffs, like most important thing that happened with Matthews for me last year was like, they lost again in the first round, which wasn't even the first round. And he said after finally, it was just like, this is a little embarrassing. Like we haven't, like we haven't won at all. Right. I'm paraphrasing, but but he did say the embarrassing part. And, uh, you know, like good players eventually just hit a point where they're like, like, I care about winning like more than anything. Like, it's not about the goal totals. It's not about whatever else the case is. Like, yes, those things help you win the game. Not that's not lost on me in any capacity. But like at some point, like he's sitting there and he's trying to like do everything that kind of leads the example for his team and say, like, follow my lead. Like, I'm trying to trying to like pave the way for all the things we need to do to win. And like, he's like one guy consistently throughout this year. Like you haven't been able to look at him and be like, like he's not doing the things that lead to winning. 
Yeah, he's really leading by example this season. And like you said, consistency from night to night uh, from an effort standpoint was always something that I got a bit frustrated with him because when you saw it, when you saw him on his A game, you go, holy crap, this is a guy who could, if not win the Hart Trophy, certainly be a top two or three player in the league on that McKinnon-McDavid level. And then there were some nights where, like you were saying, the, the engagement level wouldn't quite be there. This year, not only is he skating faster than I've ever seen him skate, he's pushing in those strides on the back track more often. He's really going hard into puck races. In the defensive zone, his ability to break up plays and then start the breakout with a fancy little saucer pass. Sometimes he'll stretch pass it up the ice. We talk a lot about his shot. We talk a lot about his size. I don't think we talk about his passing enough. I think he's a very underrated passer with the way that he can, like you say, grab a puck out of a tight space, know where the open teammate is, and be able to thread the saucer pass to the right spot. Yeah, his vision, his vision overall is incredible. I mean, he's just about as complete a player that, like, he's the most complete player they've had since Matt Sundin. And he's probably going to be a better player than Sundin. Like Sundin, I'd argue he's already better in terms of his raw peak. Yeah, like Sundin will always have a soft spot in my heart. Like he was incredible. Like basically everything you'd want in a hockey player. Like six five, right-handed center, good at everything. Um, and then here we have Matthews, and it's like. Yeah, like you probably have to admit, like Matthews is probably going to be a bit more of a dominant player um, in terms of like scoring. Although Sundin did have a few like lights out seasons on Quebec. Um, but like overall, like you're looking and you're just like, like this guy is everything. The rest of the team needs to follow his lead a little bit more. Like when we're when we're sitting here and we're like, you know, what are the expectations for this team? It's like it's that they win this division, that they go to the final four. Like it, they're not low expectations, like I'm aware, but. Like, they should win this division. And, like, Matthews is doing his part. But, like, when we're pointing out these other things where it's, like, like you know, line two is nowhere 60-plus percent of the time right now. Like, what is line three doing? Line four seems okay. After the first pairing on defense, it's a little, eh. What are we getting from Freddie? I don't know. Like, that's why we're pointing these things out. Like, you have a stud in his prime. Like, he's trying to lead the way. But, like, you guys got to follow and get the team so there. speaking speaking of 200 foot uh players who impact the game in all facets let's talk about alex galchenyuk uh, yeah <laughs> notorious yeah. defensive liability a guy who uh, i remember tweeting uh maybe this was a year or two ago just uh, a question who are some guys who peaked in their rookie season who are some guys who had their best nhl season in their first year and alex galchenyuk's one of them if you look it up his offensive impact it was one of the few years where he wasn't a train wreck defensively and he's played for a bunch of different organizations now who have told themselves this is a talented kid who off the rush has some ability, but every coach gets frustrated with him because he doesn't buy into the team concept, especially defensively. Is the story going to be any different in Toronto? Probably not, but are there any signs for optimism that he can maybe fill in somewhere where they can use him? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to hold my breath on this guy at all, but like the cost was low. So, hey, they're gambling. It, it kind of is what it is. Um, though I will say as an aside, I actually liked Korshkov. I know like the where he was drafted and whatnot is like a hot button topic, and I totally get that. But like he scored well in the A. He's scoring well in the KHL this year. Played one game with the Leafs, and he scored in that game. Like I think he could be a serviceable player in the league. Like he's certainly like he can move around, and he's a big dude, and he showed a goal-scoring knack, definitely at a rate that suggests that he could play at least a little bit in the league. 
I don't know. I I didn't think he could skate personally, and I'm I'm not, I'm always you know, whenever you draft a six foot four guy with skating deficiencies, and you're leaving the five foot eight guy who tore up the OHL off your board, th- those kind of decisions always frustrate me. But the Leafs weren't the only team to pass on Debrinkat. A lot of teams passed on Debrinkat, and they were wrong to do so. Yeah, that's fair. Pierre Engvall was the same way though, right? Like he was basically drafted because he was big, and they kind of figured out his stride. Anyways, all I'm saying is I think that he at least. I don't know if he even wants to come over to North America. I My guess is no. Um, but I think he at least had potential. But if all we're talking about is this potential like third, fourth line guy that's like big and might be able to score the odd goal in, you know, in exchange for a guy who's legitimately talented and also himself like 6'3 or whatever he is. Um, you know, I just think the, the thing with Galchenyuk is, if anything, it's just more of an indictment on the depth that they already have constructed, right? They're like, they're kind of coming to this realization that basically everybody else in the world had already come to, which is Jimmy VC's not that good. And that's probably putting it nicely. And then it's like, what are we like, who are our depth guys? Like, where's our depth scoring? So let's roll the dice on Alex Galchenyuk and see if it works. Yeah. When your opening night roster has Jimmy VC in the top six, uh, it's not, Great sign. So bringing in Alex Galchenyuk, is he going to play on the second line with Tavares and Nylander now? I, I, I'm not sure if that would work, but I mean, you're running out of options now. Things just aren't working. Ilya Mikheyev hasn't looked great there. Jimmy Vc didn't really work there. You could try Kerfoot there, I guess, at this point. We'll talk about that. Maybe bringing Thornton down to third-line center so that you can move Kerfoot up to the second line. But Thornton is, is one that I want to talk about a bit later. Next on our list here, though, of topics, we had Galchenyuk. He's a player that, you know, struggles defensively, and that, again, putting it nicely, but has some offensive talent. Where on this Leafs team, is there maybe a role for him somewhere? Potentially. The The idea in Toronto is that you need to bring in a left winger. You need to bring in a forward who can contribute in the top nine. Michael Granlund is someone that Elliot Friedman brought up in his 31 Thoughts column that he thought Toronto would be interested in. I know that the cap hit would make it a bit uh, difficult, but what are your thoughts when it comes to Michael Granlin? Because I always liked him as a passer. He was always one of those guys when I watched him at international events. I loved his creativity and his playmaking. He's one of those guys who coaches are just yelling, shoot, shoot the puck, kind of like Alex Weinberg. You just wish he'd shoot it a bit more. But I always liked his creativity. It didn't work out uh, quite as well as I think Nashville would have hoped. He, he looked much better in Minnesota. But I like him as a player. Do, do you think he's someone the Leafs could be interested in? So I really like Mikel Granlin as a player. Like I like what he brings and he's super crafty and I've got a lot of time for guys who are, you know, crafty and creative and they like they do interesting things on the ice that open up opportunities for teammates. So I'm all about that. My question would more so be like, do we think that Tavares and Nylander are a left winger away from being a good line? Like, is that, is that truly the problem or do those guys just actually not work that well together? And, like, maybe they need to give it a bit of a rethought as to the overall, like, makeup of the forward group. Okay. I, th- I think it's time to talk about John Tavares. I think now is <laughs> as good a time as any. Well, do he you hasn't... agree? Do like, do you think they're Mikel Granlin away from being a good line? Yeah, in theory, Tavares, Nylander, and anyone should be a good line. I think that's what the Leafs were hoping for when they allocated most of their resources to bringing in TJ Brody and realizing, okay, we're going to go cheap on forward because we have superstars who can play with anyone. Tavares and Nylander haven't been able to play with anyone this year. Now, what's interesting about the difference between Tavares and Nylander's numbers is that the team is uh, has significantly better results at 5-on-5 five five with Nylander versus with just Tavares. Now, again, I don't know how, what their sample is without each other. I don't think it's very much. 
But watching Tavares specifically, he hasn't looked as dangerous offensively as we've seen in years past. Is that something to be concerned about with a guy who is entering his 30s on a long-term contract? With guys who's ha- who have a skating deficiency, I always wonder how well they're going to age because sometimes you see a Joe Thornton, Nanze Kopitar, the Sedins, they age really well because speed was never the thing that they used to take over the game. It was their smarts, it was their passing, it was their puck possession game. With John Tavares, skating was never something he did at a good level. I know Barb Underhill helped him improve his edge work, and now you see him in tight spaces being able to shake off a Sean Couturier, the famous example. That's a good example of what kind of skater Tavares is. He's not an explosive north-south skater. He's more of a guy who can turn on his edges and shed somebody. Is that the part of his game that maybe is deteriorating right now and he's not as dominant on the cycle? Because I'm just trying to figure out what John Tavares isn't doing as well as he has in the past. And I'm struggling to find out what it is because his puck skills are still there. The high-end deflection ability is still there. The smarts are still there. But something seems to be missing for me right now. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a good skater when he entered the league and he really worked on it. And then he actually became an above-average skater for a few seasons there. And I think we're kind of starting to see that like revert back to you know, father time is undefeated. Father time will always be undefeated. I think we're starting to kind of see it like go back a little bit. Like he's almost non-existent dangerous off the rush. Like I can think of very few times where like he's like led the rush and we'll even just say had the puck from center to crossing the blue line and been dangerous. Like, you know, in the zone, sure. Like he gets the puck on a cycle or the corner or like something on the power play still as dangerous as ever like he's got a great shot and he's clicking at like just under a point per game so like you know he hasn't been like putrid or anything like he still produces but like I think that's probably the big worry like at some point in the next like few seasons there's going to start being this conversation and then eventual shift where it's like yeah I think John Tavares is a winger now that happened with Claude Giroux. We saw that where he was starting to, you know, deteriorate defensively, a lot of responsibilities. All of a sudden, you move Sean Couturier there and let Claude Giroux just focus on offense. And he went back to being. Did he put up 100 points in that first yeah, season? Yeah, he had a huge season. Yeah, he blew I, I, up. So I also think a little bit, and I'll, I'll let you get to your Tavares thoughts. So I'm just going to throw this out there in the wind, and I'm sure you'll have no thoughts on it, whatever, whatsoever. But um, I, I do think Nylander can be a little bit like tricky to play with like not not bad to play with by any means like he's a good player and and he opens things up because he's so talented and he has the puck on his stick all the time I just like if he's like lapping the zone and you're like his line mate like what do you do and like I mean, get open and isn't yeah. that something that Tavares has always been really good at finding the soft spots in the offensive zone I guess but like I you know like I don't know I think he I think he can be a little bit like strange to play with at times in terms of like not knowing like what to do or like not making the like traditional play like sometimes you might have the puck and you're like I'm gonna throw it on net he's gonna drive the net and then he'll like stop up and then you're like I can't make that pass across the ice right what the Leafs do a lot in the offensive zone and this is reflected in the numbers is they they're really prioritizing puck possession and I can understand why when you don't want to just throw a, a, a low percentage shot from the point on net when you have a chance to create a pass through the middle of the ice for the high percentage play. You're always looking 
for something better to develop. I think of the Morgan Riley, TJ Brody pairing where they're just rotating like, a, you know, in, in the yeah. offensive zone. Uh, it'll be Brody, Riley, Marner, Matthews usually. All four of them are cycling the offensive zone, and you'll have one kind of stable net front presence. Used to be Hyman. Now it's more of a Joe Thornton working his way behind the net. But there's all that motion. They're trying to create those passing lanes through the middle of the ice. Uh, Alec Brownscomb, our producer, had a great stat that he pulled up that showed the Leafs were second in the league in ozone possession time. But if you look at their shots and their scoring chances, it's not in the top five. So despite their elite puck possession game in the offensive zone, which I think Nylander is a perfect example of that type of player, a guy who prioritizes his team having the puck on their stick, they're losing the shot quality aspect of things. So even though they're able to maintain possession along the perimeter, they're not able to break through to the middle. Is that a Nylander Tavares thing? Is that a separate issue? Is it the fact that there's no spacing in the offensive zone because teams aren't respecting the third player on that line? I think sometimes that's something that we forget about when we're evaluating players, that if you don't have a line mate that the other team is going to respect at all, it becomes very difficult to create offense. And I think Tavares and Nylander are kind of finding that out this year. Yeah, a little bit for sure. I think everyone will naturally say like, well, it's because they have the puck on the perimeter all the time. So like they're controlling the the play, but they're not like, you know, doing anything of note with it, which I think is partially true. Not entirely, but I, I if you're going to say like, do they have the puck a lot on the perimeter instead of the dangerous areas? I think it would be hard to argue against that. At I think this Toronto point. more so than most teams, that's become something that we're noticing. And, and, you know, I just... I wish there was a bit more variety in how they attacked it a little bit, right? Like, it is okay to just throw a puck onto the net and, like, go to the net and see what happens. Like, that is a perfectly acceptable hockey play. I, they they really refuse to do that. I think Montreal and Toronto are kind of tactically in the offensive zone, polar opposites of each other. Montreal's very old school. They like getting a Brendan Gallagher to the net. They like getting a Josh Anderson to the net. You know, your typical power forward. And our defensemen, we're just going to keep two high at the blue line. We don't want to give up any odd man rushes. And we're going to fire that safe shot on net and try to recover the offensive rebound and, and make some kind of dangerous play off of that. The Leafs, their philosophy to creating offense is, is very different. They're thinking, we don't want to give you the puck. We have it. So we're not just going to waste a possession by firing it on net and potentially losing the puck afterwards. We're going to wait for something better to develop and try to create that dangerous pass that breaks the defense. When you succeed, it's awesome. And, and you know, when Morgan Riley is able to thread that cross-ice pass after flying down the left wall, it's really cool. When it doesn't work, you leave yourself a bit vulnerable defensively because especially when you have defensemen activating into the play, it means that a forward's covering for them. So just I'm thinking about this at the team level. I like the idea of maintaining possession and trying to find creative ways to create offense. But at the same time, you have to remember what you're going to give up the other way by playing that style and it's something that with the Tavares Nylander line, the offense hasn't been elite. And then you're giving up some stuff the other way that you don't love. So if you're going to take those risks to create offense, I'd like there to be more of a reward. I'd like them to actually score the goals that they're trying to score when they're making those plays. Yeah. And if we think about it, like quite honestly, like how statistically likely is it that they're going to be able to like in a repeated fashion, be able to like consistently control the puck and like create those really nice looks like that, like, that without, you know, using the other side of things, which is just sometimes like throw a puck on net and go to the net and like, you know, take a hack at the goalie or whatever it is. But like, just get a little like dirty, like get a little in the crease, like get your jersey dirty, like maybe rip your sock, like something like, like is it that can't. Is that how your roster's constructed right now? 
it's not, but then that makes them a little bit easier to defend, right? Like they, they scored, what did they score? Four, five goals against the Habs. One was an empty netter, two or four on four. I mean, that's, again, one game sample, two game sample. I two don't game, know what we're looking yeah. at here. Yeah, two so. game sample, right? But when we talk about, but what's not the two game samples, we talk about like the entire season so far and we're like, they're riding a hot power play. They're not that good at five on five. So like to some degree, like we are knowing that they're not like that hot at five on five. But yeah, when they're setting up the great shot on the power play, they look unreal because they've got a ton of talent, but like it, it needs to be a little bit more of a mixture so I think now's a good time to move to our overreaction, underreaction segment. We were going to do one on Tavares and Nylander, but I feel like we kind of touched on that by by going through both players there. So do you want to use that as a topic, or do you want to move right on to Thornton, which is the guy that I really want to talk about? I'm okay with talking about Tavares and Nylander a little bit more because I'm not sure if we like fully divulged into, like, should they stay together? Should they split them up? Like, what's what's the overall... What's the overall plan there, I guess? I think the concern with splitting them up is that you'd also be breaking up the Matthews-Marner combination, which looks completely le- like deadly right now. Uh, you have your team's best goal scorer with your team's best passer. And whether it's Joe Thornton or Zach Hyman or whoever you're playing with them, that's consistently been the Leafs' best line. So so, so let's, say, let's say Matthews and Marner are a 10 out of 10. Okay, fair, sure. Fair. And then are Tavares and Nylander like a 6 out of 10, 5 on 5? See, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about this scale. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> but I, I see what you're saying. You're saying, right. okay, your first line has been awesome and your second line has been mediocre. If you and move Nylander up with Matthews and bring Marner down with Tavares, have you created two, two lines that are now better than what you had before? Yeah, I, I like the idea. Or conversely, and I know I get, I know I've received a ton of heat on this. I just, I don't know why they don't try Nylander at center. Like, give him his own line. Like, he's the most dangerous through the middle of the ice. Like, he's played there before in the A. Like, they were grooming him to be the one, the first-line center until they won the lottery and selected Matthews. Like, like this guy can play. Like, he can skate. He's good with the puck. Like, I, like I think all, they could give it a look. All the factors that you bring up about the frustrations that some fans have with Nylander and the frustrations that some coaches have with Nylander, I think those are reasons why a lot of NHL head coaches and, and coaches throughout Nylander's life haven't really trusted him at center. But I'm with you. I think he's at his most dangerous when he has the puck on his stick in the middle of the ice where he has room to create a play in transition, which, again, is where he's at his best when he's flying up the ice, off the rush, making high-skill plays in open space. That's where William Nylander makes an impact on the outcome of a hockey game. When he cycled in the offensive zone with Austin Matthews the first couple of years of their career, I thought yeah. they really brought out the best in each other. They did. And now Austin Matthews seems to have taken his game to another level where having an elite passer like Mitch Marner, and as much as I like William Nylander, Mitch Marner's a better passer than William Nylander. It shows up in all the metrics. You look at power play assists per 60, which is a great way of evaluating a guy's ability to break down a defense with a pass. Mitch Marner's first in the league in power play assists per 60 since, since entering the league in 2016. So... You pair an elite passer with an elite shooter. That's Everyone thinks about it. Okay, yeah, that just makes sense. That's what you should do. But if William Nylander and John Tavares aren't performing well together right now, does it make sense to reunite that Matthews-Nylander combination that we know works, the Tavares-Marner combination, which led to both players' best results that we've ever seen at uh, an individual level. Tavares had a career year goal-wise. Marner had a career year assist-wise. 
maybe it's something to consider. Maybe it's something you need to go to at this point because I can't figure out why Tavares Nylander isn't working. I've been trying to break it down in film. I've been trying to look at the numbers with, without you, you know, some of the, the deeper stats. It still isn't answering the question as to why they're not producing. And maybe the answer is they will eventually. It, it's going to happen because they're elite players and they're just going through a bit of a funk right now. But I hear what you're saying. Hey, maybe they need uh, a bit of a kick in the rear end and maybe uh, switching up the lines is a way to do that. So I'll say I'll say two things on this note just to end it. One, going back to the center point, and you know that I've been critical at times of these certain things that Nylander may or may not be doing that leads to him playing like 16 minutes a night despite how good he really is. That's another thing we should be talking about is just how little uh, they're playing Tavares and Nylander, which I can understand. They're not playing which that is earned. right now. It's earned, though, so I don't mind that. But the, But there is something to be said where it's like, here's your line and this is your responsibility. And I think that would actually bring out the best in William Nylander. I would love to see it just to say like, you know, it's one thing if you blow an assignment as a winger, it's really not as big of a deal as if you are a center or the last guy back, which is often the things that I'll try to point out. But like when you're the center, like it's on you, like it, like it's a much more difficult position. Any forward will tell you that like moving to the wing, more involved with the play in both ends. if, If you're a center and you move to the wing, it's like a free shift. Like it really is. So I think that there is a little bit of like poking and prodding there that could happen where like that actually elevates Nylander's play. Like we've seen him respond before to like criticism and stuff. Like he's, he doesn't like, you know, like turtle to those things. And then like his game goes off the rails. Like he picks it up when he gets called out. So there's that. But two, like they, they played Ottawa last night, like Ottawa. The Ottawa Senators, and they're like, this line's so bad, we're going to put Zach Hyman on it to like get it going. And they still didn't look that good. So Again, one, one game, game we'll see. I want to see a 5-10 to 10 game run yeah. with it to see if they can I, get it going here. I do too. I feel like if it's Ottawa, like one game counts as two in terms of sample, of what, at least if we're trying to see some like positive things happen. Oh, you happen couldn't here. score against Ottawa? Yeah. You couldn't create dangerous but, offense against Ottawa? Create dangerous offense. Not really the scoring, but like they weren't. It wasn't like that line was hopping over the boards and they were catching my eye, like in a good yeah, way. Yeah, because again, like shooting percentage, heaters, and, yeah. and going but, through pe- poor slumps, that happens, but it's the scoring chances. It's repeatedly being in the offensive zone and making things happen. We haven't seen it to the degree that we've seen it in the past. So if we're talking here to this time next week and that line was together for two more games against Ottawa and then a game against Montreal and we're having this chat and we're like, yeah, we still didn't really notice them. They still didn't do anything. Like, I don't want to say four games is enough, but like that would be like fairly, fairly telling. So we'll see on that. That's I would split them up. I would either just switch the pairings like we said, or I would just give each one a line and see how it goes. You have Ottawa twice more. Experiment. I'd just trade for Taylor Hall and throw him on that line. You know? <laughs> get three all-stars out there. <laughs> so speaking fun. of first line, we also have Joe Thornton on line one, which you and I have argued about a little bit already. Um, you go first. I like Joe Thornton. I, <laughs> he spent last year with Marcus Sorensen as his most common line mate. So Thornton's ability to get into the offensive zone and make a play, make the next pass, I think is what makes him an effective player. It has throughout his life, his vision. It's not his skating that separates him from other players. Much like Tavares, he kind of has a skating deficiency. But Thornton's ability to win-lose puck battles in the offensive zone is something he has a proven ability to do. And we saw it last night against the Ottawa Senators. He gets into the offensive zone, he'll win a puck battle, 
He'll make the next pass to a player, whether it's Matthews or Marner or on the blue line, Riley and Brody. And I think if you play Joe Thornton with other players who can do things with the passes that he's giving them, you're going to get a lot of value out of Joe Thornton. Is the best spot for him in an NHL lineup on the first line in a playoff game? Maybe not, but I think when we're talking about how to construct an NHL lineup, we need to consider that you're probably going to have one weak link on the ice. And if Joe Thornton's your weak link and you can surround him with some star players who are taking advantage of his passing ability, I think that's a good use of his talents. Yeah, and I like Joe Thornton too. Like, I don't dislike the guy, but like, Jason Spezza is good too. Like, just as, if not more, he's been more productive over the past year and a half than Thornton, and he's like four years younger, and he can shoot. Like, but nobody's climbing on the wall to get that guy in a top two line. Yeah, like, Spezza's what's the been difference? better on the power play, I think, when you look at his ability to run the half wall on the power play, gain the zone on the power play entries. You see Spets' skill. But at 5-on-5, five five, Thornton's numbers with the Matthews-Marner line are just ridiculous. I mean, they're going to drop off. He's not. I don't think he's going to keep controlling two-thirds of the shots and scoring chances at even strength. No one does that. That's like prime Pavel Datsuk, Patrice Bergeron-level yeah. numbers. We're not, we're not going to see that. But the fact that they're controlling play when he's on the ice at such a high level, it's a very good indicator for future success. If they can dominate play territorially with Joe Thornton on the ice, I like that combination. But your concern, I guess, is you're throwing them out against Montreal's top line. You're throwing them out against Winnipeg's top line. You're throwing them out against the Kachuk line in Calgary. Do you trust Joe Thornton to not be a liability defensively in that situation? I can understand a situation where he's going to be you know, one of the last men back, you know, skating back in a three-on-two or two-on-one situation. But again, look at his passing ability. Look at the passes he's able to create in the offensive zone. Those have value, and I get that he's not a shot threat, so that's something that is going to hurt your spacing a little bit because he'll get open behind the net. He'll be there for an outlet. But if he's open in the slot, we've seen this on the power play too. When Joe Thornton's in the bumper role, I don't think you're fooling anyone. He's not going to shoot the puck from there. If, and if he does, I don't think there's a great chance of it going in. But he is a great passer, and that's what the Leafs are trying to do right now. They're trying to figure out how do we leverage this elite passing skill set despite him being below average in a lot of other areas. And playing him with strong talent, playing him with your best players, so far it seems to be working. I want to see it for a few more games because I've, I've really liked the results so far. Yeah, and like, I think there's a role and there's a time for it throughout the actual just like flow of a game for sure. Like, I mean, he's, he's not a bad player. Like he can still play the game, but like, we've only seen him put up points against Ottawa so far this season. Like he doesn't have point. And I know it's three games, but you know, we'll see how that continues to trend. My feeling is that over like a course of like playing a bunch of really good teams, it would probably not be as favorable to him as if, you know, they're going to play Ottawa a bunch of times. Tight checking the neutral zone that's where speed might be more of a concern yeah and like i know it's kind of funny when he like like pushes guys in the pants to like back check and stuff and it is funny but like it's only funny to a point i think like eventually like you need to do it if you're going to be playing on the top line against other top players so i don't know we'll see how it goes my thing with it is just it shouldn't be as permanent as they're making it like they're just like this is the top line and like we're deploying it up until like they were together the entire time last night until the final shift when when uh, Thornton was out there and he kind of like had a mix up with Matthews in coverage and they were like, yeah, this is done. And they put Hyman out there like immediately, like they kept Matthews and, and Marner out, but they were like, okay, like get off the line. And like, it should be the other way around. It should be like, yeah, like with Hyman and Matthews and Marner, like that's, I mean, that's a top five line in the league. 
maybe top three, arguably top one. Like, hey, by the numbers, the Thornton line with them is better. But again, will that hold over over the next few games? Tough to say. I don't think. Do you think Joe Thornton is a better player than Zach Hyman? Uh, in a vacuum, at this, no. At this time. Does his yeah. passing ability make star players better than Zach Hyman's puck retrieval ability does? That would be my question. That'd be fair. And I against a good team, I'd argue what Hyman does is more valuable because like, it's harder to get the puck in those spots. But I think there's a fair... Like I said, I would just alternate it more. I would probably shade towards Hyman being on that line more and then look for the odd opportunity where they can put Thornton up there. Like I said, same thing with Spezza. Like they could move him up. They actually did uh, a few games ago where they put Spezza on the third line just because like they were getting nothing out of that Kerfoot line, so they put Spezza up with him and like he made a difference. So they could use those guys more. I would actually just like to see Spezza and Thornton play together, and like a really good scoring fourth line. And when Nick Robertson gets back, I know he's playing in the AHL right now, but the idea of uh, Thornton, Spezza, Nick Robertson, like, hey, we'll thread our best shooter, uh, some passes, see what he can do with them. I I like the idea of it. And with Thornton, an interesting thing I noticed the other night is that sometimes he was coming off of shifts early when Matthews and Marner were still out there, and then they'd throw Nylander out there and get Matthews, Mm -hmm. Marner, Nylander cycling the offensive zone, get a quick little power line in there. I like the idea of that. That That's cool. Sometimes late in games, they're holding a lead. They'll go Hyman, Matthews, Marner. You don't need to play Joe Thornton as many minutes as Matthews and Marner despite playing on the same line as them. But you can use him in certain situations where it's going to benefit the team. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're we're being pretty fair on that overall. Just We'll see how they deploy it. I'm willing to go back in like 15 games and say, okay, this is how Thornton looks after playing some good teams. So we did want to get to the last two topics. Now, we can get into... Sheldon Keefe and his post-game comments now, or we can get to stat of the week and then end with Sheldon Keefe. I will leave it up to you, Ian. Let's go stat of the week because it's it's just a quick wrap-up on the Joe Thornton discussion. Perfect. Where do you think he ranked in Ozone passes uh, completed last season, despite playing with Marcus Sorensen as his most common lineman? And who's the other, other guy? Was it LeBanc? Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd need to look it up. I just remember Marcus Sorensen being his most common linemate and me thinking, oh my God, this is who Joe Thornton's playing is, with right now. Is this like raw number of passes? Yeah, raw number of passes completed in the offensive zone last season. I bet you he's like seventh or like, I think he's top 10 because he just throws yeah, it to the first. point. first. Look he at that. He's ranked first. Yeah, and sixth in uh, puck retrievals in the offensive zone, despite not playing with the greatest talent. So... That's why I'm optimistic about Joe Thornton because I think there are indicators that this guy, despite having some clear weaknesses in his game in his 40s, still has the ability to complete the next pass in a passing sequence, still has an ability to win pucks in the offensive zone. And does that... uh, We talk about Zach Hyman on puck retrievals. Joe Thornton might not be Zach Hyman, but he finds a way to get pucks back in the offensive zone. He finds a way to get body position, use his stick, and then complete the next pass. Sometimes I think we forget that completing a pass, sometimes that's defense. Sometimes that's just making sure that we have the puck and you don't, and it's not a body check to somebody. It's not a stick lift. It's completing the next pass. It's feathering it to an open player. But that's defense sometimes, and Joe Thornton's really good at that. That's fair. Thornton is a little bit better on the forecheck than I thought he was going to be that so last thing we wanted to get to was uh, some Sheldon Keefe postgame comments uh, and just some overall coaching decisions and have a little bit of a discussion on that. So after the game last night, uh, Sheldon Keefe, to, at least to my ear, 
has had a bit of a consistent theme after losses of making some uh, head-scratching comments, I'll call them, on my end of things. Um, So after last night, he said, and these are direct quotes, what I saw really started before 5-1. I thought we were just really careless and sloppy with the puck. It is just something that has been creeping into our game. I thought that the nature of the way the game was going, it wasn't everybody, but I think there were enough guys. We just gave the game to them at a time when they really had nothing. They only got what we gave them. With Sheldon Keefe postgame quotes, I, with any NHL coach giving a postgame quote, I think a lot of the times you need to read between the lines because they're not going to give you what you want if you're in the media and you're trying to ask the really tough question. When are they actually going to give you an insightful, thoughtful a plus answer that you can just throw into your column and say yes this is exactly what I'm looking for hockey coaches don't do that so when you're assessing what Sheldon Keefe says after a hockey game what are you looking for specifically because to take something out of that or he's made a bunch of weird comments after some games you're thinking what do you mean by that Sheldon what are you doing with the quotes that Sheldon Keefe gives you because I remember when Mike Babcock was the coach there are some great quotes that you can pull out to, to try to evaluate things. I mean, Justin Hall and company, Josh Levo. But with Sheldon Keefe specifically, I, I know that you find it frustrating, but uh, what is it specifically that's been bothering you about his latest comments? So just to generally speaking, and I know you have to take everything with a grain of salt that a coach is going to say, especially right after the game, especially right after your team just gave five straight goals up, especially to that team being the Ottawa Senators. So I get like the overall premise of it. But overall, when I'm like, when I'm listening into post-game conferences for either coach, whatever the case is, I'm really just trying to see, like, figure out like a little bit of insight, just a little bit into what they saw, right? Like what they were thinking. And in that case, like, it's fair if Keith's going to sit there and say, you know, like we were kind of sloppy all night. Um, I could have seen this coming kind of thing, which is essentially what he's applying, right? Like, you know, we were, we really weren't that that great even though we were up 5-1 and some bad habits crept into our game to which I would just respond like what did you do about it then like throughout the game like what changes did you make that tried to address it because I didn't see you change the lineup I didn't see you move guys around I didn't see you know guys get benched or whatever the case is of note so if you're going to sit there and say like yeah quite early on I knew that like we didn't have it or like we've had these like habits, I'd sit there and say, okay, well, like your job as coach is to make adjustments when those things happen. Like, what did you do? So we know that the Leafs, uh, you know, collapsing in spectacular fashion, that predates Sheldon Keefe. That, that's been happening for a while. I mean, that, that predates Austin Matthews, if we're being honest. Yeah. But what is the coach supposed to do when you can feel something like that starting to happen? What decisions should you be making to prevent a collapse from happening in the third period? So like there were a few things that kind of stood out to me as like, did you, did you need to do this? So it was five, two. I know we talked about this a little bit before the show as well. Like it's five, two and there's an offensive zone face off with like 14 seconds left on the power play. And you put one forward out with four forwards and like it's five two and four forwards one defenseman. Yeah, sorry, uh, four forwards one defenseman, and like it's five two. Like, it, it's not like your defense are like incompetent. Like you have some good defensemen. Like like they're fine. Like you could put them out there for fourteen seconds. Like you could put two defensemen out there. It's not the end of the world. And instead, it's like yeah, let's push the envelope here even further. Instead of like 
yeah, like maybe we're not playing that well. Like, let's just try to like slow this game down and like really like, you know, drag it on. But like you give them uh, like reasons for hope there. And Ottawa's like, if, they, if they're down 5-2, if they're down 6-2, it's whatever for them. They're the Ottawa Senators this season, right? But you kind of, like, you open the door. And then... I, I don't... With the four forwards, one defenseman, I don't have too big of a problem with it specifically just because there's so much research that shows that you improve your chances of scoring a goal when you throw four forwards on the ice and one defenseman. For sure the caveat is that it also improves the other team's chances of scoring a goal. The differential works out in your favor, which is why almost every team is using four forwards on their power play now. But with 14 your, seconds your point left. Is, your point is, again, the game state, the game situation, three-goal lead, is giving up a goal now worth the risk uh, that we really need to get that next goal? And this is why you see teams put, take their foot off the gas in the third period and kind of turtle and kind of play defensive hockey because it doesn't matter if we score another goal. What we really need to do is prevent a goal. That's where score effects come from. But uh, I don't know. That decision in particular saying, didn't bother me too much. I'm not even saying play prevent hockey. Like, I'm not saying fold it up, cross center, shoot it down deep. Like, the first like f1 isn't even going to cross the top of the circle but like like at at 5-2 like are you sitting there being like we need six goals to beat ottawa like and i know what happened after but at that point you're like we need six goals to beat ottawa instead of five like and again it's not like putting on two defensemen in that scenario is like waving the white towel <coughs> and just abandoning as i go on this rant and ian sneezes but yeah, sorry I'm, I'm allergic to terrible opinions <laughs> <laughs> well I mean, at that point, it backfired on them, so I feel okay about it. But, you know, like, it's not like putting on two defensemen abandons, like, all thoughts there. Like, you could have just put on Muzzin and Hole. Like, Muzzin has competently quarterback power plays for years in the league, like, and he has a good shot. And Hole's been actually quite impressive offensively, just as an example, so far this season. Like, it's not like you've mailed it in completely. So, I don't know. To me, it's like you're saying that your team was playing sloppy and you're trying to be risk adverse. And then at 5-2, you're like, yeah, you know what? Let's gamble with like 14 seconds left here for like quite literally no reason. And like see how it goes. It doesn't really add up to me with like three so minutes left. you're saying that his comments say one thing, whereas his actions say another? Which I think happens actually a little bit more often than people think. We just don't consistently like dissect his comments. Like, I mean, you put out Alex Kerfoot and Jimmy Vc together with under three minutes left to protect a one goal lead. Like those are penalty killers to be fair on, on this specific team. They are, but like, is that really like a line that you want to go down with? Like th they got, they've been putting VC out in uh, like six on five situations for, uh, a lot this year. And I guess they're trying to find a way to salvage the Jimmy VC experience. They're trying to justify his existence. They've been trying to do it pretty much since day one, but like, you know, at some point, like, like he's got to wear it too, right? Like he, you know, this goes back to like last year for me in the playoffs, like they would lose to Columbus and he would come out and be like, we didn't look prepared. I'm like, that's your job. Like your job is to prepare the team. Like that's what the coach does. So I don't know, like if you're going to come out and you're going to be like Cavalier and he's called out a number of players in his press conferences, like he really has, like since he started, like, does anyone come to mind specifically? Like even in the blue and white game, he like specifically called out Pierre Engvall. As like someone who didn't look good, I'm like in the blue and white game and, and training And I'm just camp. like, oh wow, Sheldon Keith hates Pierre Engvall. Okay, yeah, duly noted. Like, how necessary is that to do in the blue and white game? So I'm just saying, like, you're gonna come out and you're gonna, you're gonna like name guys and you're gonna name names at times and you're gonna be cavalier. 
And then you're also going to sit there and be like, yeah, I saw this coming and I just essentially did nothing about it. Like he didn't, like he didn't change the lineup. He didn't, right? It took them until literally tying the game. And then he was like, yeah, I should probably put Zach Hyman back with Matthews and Marner. Yeah, maybe do that a bit earlier when you're holding a lead in a game. Maybe when you have a lead, you don't need Joe Thornton playing as many minutes. Uh, I don't know. Is Joe Thornton there for offense? Then again, like we talked about, sometimes passing can be a defensive play. But I think it's time to get out of here. I'm going to be paying a bit more close attention to Keith's comments now because, frankly, it wasn't something that I really thought too much about before. And now with Anthony's rant, I'm thinking, okay, let's see if Keith puts his money where his mouth is when it comes to some of these post-game comments. But any way to, to wrap up the podcast real quick heading into next week? Yeah, like I I expect that Hutchinson's going to get one of the two games. So I'm kind of curious how he like looks. we've been saying this for a while now. He has to, right? Like he has to. Um, you know, I'm hoping that Freddie... I don't know about rebounds, but I hope he has a strong game. Like I kind of felt bad for him on that in the Ottawa game to some degree. It was like, what were the goals? Like two breakaways, a batted puck out of the air, like a one-timer in the slot off like a A given go. Tavares turnover right in the middle of his, uh, in the slot there, yeah. Tavares like opening up like a pizza nova, like right in the middle of the arena. Like you go down, like most of them, the, the first goal was bad. The backhand was, that was a bad goal. Short side, backhand, terrible goal. But beyond that, like, I don't know. I, like, you got to make a save. Don't get me wrong. He, like, it'd be nice if he made a save. But yeah, we're I, it just we're recording this on February sixteenth, uh, Tuesday night. They've got two more games against Ottawa this week, and then a Saturday night game against Montreal Canadiens. Uh, guess which one of those games we're going to be watching really closely, and guess which two we're not going to be watching as closely. Uh, <laughs> gee, I wonder. But uh, we'll be back next week with some more thoughts on the Leafs. Hopefully not as many uh, angry comments about Keith, but hey, no promises. You know, Anthony, sometimes he's just got to go uh, on tilt. Sometimes he's got to go on his rants. But um, we'll be back next week with mo- more Joe Thornton debates, more William Nylander debates, and apparently more Sheldon Keith debates. That's what we do now. <laughs> Have a good one, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, buddy. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation. 